Welcome to Navigating Change, everybody. I'm Pete Wright. That there is Howard Teibel. Hi, Pete. What? <laughs> what was that? <laughs> oh, no, I never know how to do this with you. I, and that right there is. And sometimes you pause. Other times you like you let me say something, and it's you know you're you're just so smooth. I'm and I, saying and I'm still learning. You Go ahead, are what? when we're doing this pos- podcast. I fully expect your A game, Mr. Teibel. Are we live? Yeah. All right, good. Keep yeah. going. <laughs> hey, I I, I got to tell you, I read this uh, editorial from our uh, our uh, good friend Jeff Salingo, uh, and it's very very interesting. It was very interesting. I so I sent this to you, and I, I it was more uh, just sort of off the cuff. Hey, Howard, what do you think of this? It ties into some of the work you're doing too that we've talked about. Maybe we should do a podcast. And you wrote what I can only classify as a treatise in response, uh, which I loved. It's it's just you know five thousand word essay on your thoughts on You're such the- exaggerated. <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, so get to the point already. In Would truth, you... Jeff's uh, piece is fascinating. It really, the, it it really boils down um, that we have insurgents in the field of education that. Uh, there are new models of learning, just-in-time education, that are n- not just a buzzword, as they have been over the last decade, but now a reality, a reality with real users, with real uh, real paying customers that are, when they need to learn something, it's not unlike the Matrix. I want to learn Kung Fu. I'm going to inject it through the port in the back of my brain. That's kind of the metaphor that we're getting to here. And the, he poses the question, does traditional higher education, are they able and and willing to catch up and uh, that's where i offer it to you okay so i love sort of i love what jeff does because when i read you know sometimes he's he's hard-hitting and uh i think he makes people uncomfortable but i think that's what he does well and i think it's an important uh gift that he's giving the industry (laughs) you know whether he's right or wrong whether you like him whether you like what he writes or not uh what he's doing is pushing the envelope and Given that what my business is, is helping institution leaders through change, I read this piece around all of this innovation that is bubbling up around uh, the traditional way higher education moves in many cases, you know, like an ocean liner, in other cases moving very quickly. And there there really is no one-size-fits-all. You know, I would say that school leaders – if they're reading this, whether it's on the academic or the uh, the president or the a- anyone at the institution, they're saying one of three things: one, oh crap, he's right; <laughs> two, we're doing this, we're fine; three, we need to start doing this, we need to start pushing the envelope more. You know, board members are probably looking at this; they don't know what to do with this information. I mean, that's the other interesting thing is they're out there and they keep putting these. Chronicle articles in front of the president, uh, and they often don't even know what to do with them. But they see all this change, you know. They see this writing by Salingo and others, and say, "Oh my God, are we falling behind?" Uh, so really, that's the fourth category: is uh, we don't know who we are anymore. I mean, I, when I think of the what I'm listening to out there, it really is one: we're behind; two: we're fine; we're doing this; three: you know what? Let's use this as an impetus to start doing it. And four is, you know what? We don't know who we want to be. Are we a liberal arts school? Are we a research institution? I was just in this dialogue with a school that lives in both worlds, and they need to figure out 
whether they are going to tell their story in one way or are they going to tell it in another because it's it it can be a confusing message. So I think that Jeff is pushing the right buttons in the things that he says around this. It's um, a, it, it ends up, the, it, talk just a, a second about what is so confusing about this. Is it because these models are seem to act in conflict with one another that you can't authentically market sort of one way of, uh, uh, one identity without dismantling the other? Well, it's this, it's this idea that if you're going to make a change, uh, let's talk about programmatic change, it needs to go through a system of governance that often by the time it's like telephone, by the time it gets to the end, uh, it's back to sort of where it started. Right. So putting any kind of change in place around a academic, um, uh, an academic initiative uh, requires not only that it's thoughtful, but that very likely you might get a piece of it out there. And you know, I think what Jeff's pointing to is, um, there, there is innovation happening out there in many different pockets. And this is important for the larger industry to see that it can be done. It comes down to each school making a decision, uh, each school leadership making a decision, how willing are we uh, to actually move this thing forward? You know, my view of this, you know, because I was thinking after reading this, is that, you know, so so you know, what is my perspective? In addition to sort of knowing there's four there's four views out there, you know, the first one is the schools that survive through this transition, in some case transformation, need to be more lean in their administrative and academic workforce structures, and grow the re- the programs that generate revenue. Period. Continuing subsidizing uh, programs that lose money is going away. Unfortunately, uh, the days of being able to have uh, graduate support undergrad and, and fund losing programs or the other way around, that's going away. Uh, and this is a this is a difficult transition because uh, the higher ed industry hasn't had the practice of operating this way. Uh, and, and the tension is, what what is the brand, you know, of the four thousand degree grand institutions? What is each one of their unique brand that they want to preserve, and what are the pieces that they have to be willing to let go of? So that's the that's the one thing I'm seeing playing out in many different places. It's fascinating you bring that up when you think about so many, you, you think about the the number of degree granting institutions, 4,000 institutions we're talking about here. Uh, how many of them is the brand directly impacted by things like, uh, you know, location, facility, uh, the things that when, when we name check organizations like lynda.com uh, and uh, Khan Academy, where location doesn't even enter into the brand. Where your location is home, you can do this. Yeah, well, so so the schools that have uh, not only a great brand but a brick, but a great location, they're sitting in a slightly better position than the schools that are in regions where there's a declining uh, high school population, uh, and they're not, for whatever reason, not drawing from out of region growth, and the schools that are suffering from that are in this position to have to look at 
How are we going to cut appropriately? And this is the kind of work that we're in the middle of in so many different places. Uh, you know, the other thing is, you know, I talk a lot about how do you create urgency and you got to, um, you got to both uh, tell the brutal facts, but also have a positive view of the future. You know, I think in the end, uh, if we're going to make the changes prior to a external kind of uh, real resetting of the economy, like if we went back and, you know, God forbid, uh, to what we experienced in 2008, I think leaders have to either instill, you know, the fear of God uh, to make these changes real, or it needs to be a visionary leader who's willing to risk losing his job. Uh, because if you're going to put some changes in place, if you know, if your heart tells you, we do not have a window of time, uh, we don't have two years uh, to figure this out, we need to make these changes now, you're taking a risk. Uh, and, and that risk could uh, cause faculty to say, you know, we lose confidence in you. Uh, but if you know in this case, and again, I'm speaking to the president in this case, if the president knows he's got the board's back, and he also knows that he's doing the right thing for the mission of the institution. Uh, looking at these questions about how do we change, some of it's about what you read in the article that I think Jeff's talking about, which is you know being innovative and more effective and, and, and more connecting to students. But others, it's very much about fiscal sustainability, and it's coming to a head. So, talk to me about what comes uh, what comes next. You make this point in your uh, in your aforementioned treatise uh, about luck. What is what are we talking about with regard to luck? Uh, because that's not something that you, you that I, I imagine you go to to boards that you're working with or university presidents and saying, you know, the next step is you just you're going to have to wait for to be lucky. Yeah. Well. Okay. So so the the, the third concept that came out of uh, preparing for thinking about this conversation uh, comes out of you know the one thing is we need to be making tough decisions around being more lean and uh, stopping subsidizing programs that continue to lose money. That's where things are going. That's one. Mm -hmm. Two. It's about we have to install yeah install inst instill the fear of God in people or. Uh, have a visionary view of where we're going to go and then having the courage to take it in that direction. And then I thought, well, what else is there? But you know what the third one is? It's about luck. You know, when I think about my career, if, if I think about direction, so much of what gets put in front of us has a lot to do with external factors that we have no control over. But positive luck is really about, and there's been research done on this. Uh, you know, Richard Wiseman wrote, wrote this book on luck, and he researched uh, and spoke to over 400 volunteers, and he really did deconstruct luck and and describe some principles associated with it. I'm not suggesting that we put a strategy around luck. Actually, that's not true. More than I think about it, I actually think there is value uh, as I'm speaking out loud. Uh, to put an awareness that we have to have a certain kind of mindset. When I look at his principles, maximizing chance opportunities, uh, listening to lucky hunches, expecting good fortune, and turn bad luck into good, if you read more into the details around that, what you learn is that it has everything to do with how we bring ourselves to a problem. 
And it's what I talk about in my change workshop, the difference between looking at a, at a challenge as an opportunity or as something to avoid or be afraid of. So to me, when, when I look at things that go well in my life, it, some of it has to do with my hard work, but it also has to do with showing up and looking for uh, the right outcome to show up and trusting that it will over the long run. That's You can't really quantify that entirely, but I think there is an equation in this that we got to give ourselves permission and say, you know what, some of this is out of our control, but I'm going to choose to look for the positive outcome versus the negative outcome. I, I like this because it, 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 you know, even though we're coming at it from a little bit of a, a soft um, point, you know, luck is a little bit of a, a ethereal word, but it also really represents the perspective uh, that applies to everyone involved in a major change initiative. Right, and this is something else you've talked about at length before, which is this idea that um, you know change begins in the seat you're in, right? And you can choose right. to show up uh, and and show up and bring your A game, so to speak, or you can be the guy who really doesn't want to go to the family reunion. It's well, just going to be grumpy and poisonous the whole exactly. time. Exactly. Well, I'm going to read the first principle, very once two sentences Please. that says everything for me around this idea of. Um, of showing up and looking for opportunity. And it's this principle he talks about maximizing chance opportunities. Lucky people are skilled at creating, noticing, and acting upon chance opportunities. They do this in various ways, including networking, adopting a relaxed attitude to life, and by being open to new experiences. Man, that's everything from my perspective. Uh, having the kind of mindset to show up and... Uh, be open to a positive outcome as opposed to what is the next shoe going to drop? And in the face of change that can be a little scary, we often default to how bad it's going to be for us. And I think that we can produce something good and he calls it luck. I think that, I think it's a, that is a very useful way of, of recognizing the intangible associated with making positive change. Let's bring this back as we close to uh, to this idea of competing models in institutions, or, or in education, and, and this idea that there is uh, an increasing competition uh, between models. If you're working with a, an institution that's struggling uh, with finding their identity, as we've talked about before, um, what are some, some final words you might wrap up into, in terms of guidance, how to, to uh, think about finding a new place uh, in the world if you're trying to catch up? Well, the schools that are doing this now in a, in a productive way is they recognize it needs to be a shared conversation. It is not a conversation that just lives with the cabinet. It's not a conversation that just lives with the board. Uh, and it doesn't live with, uh, just with faculty and whoever is driving in this case, very often the president, sometimes the board who's ever driving the change has to step back and find a way to say, are we involving all the right players, including students, maybe parents, in this dialogue around change? And, you know, I, I, I've doing, we've been doing more and more work with uh, K through 12 private schools. They are taking this, this idea on. Uh, 
you could argue if you're in higher ed, your excuse is, well, we're much bigger than independent schools. They have the freedom to do it because, you know, they're not, they don't have as much bureaucracy. But the truth is, if you make the attempt to bring uh, players to represent the different constituent areas together and say, we're going to design our next direction, but we want, and we're going to do this together. That to me is the only way this is going to happen. Now, let me just offset that by saying one thing. Working with another school where they, the, you know, the, the head of the school is saying very clearly, I've got two years. And after two years, if we don't figure this out, we're actually might not be an institution. That, that kind of urgency sometimes demands uh, a leader stepping forward and making tough decisions. And sometimes you can't afford to bring in all the players and turn it into this big, long process. At the same time, you can't forget to involve people uh, in the change because they're going to have to live with it. And you're going to have to live with them after you've decided how you're going to make these changes. Uh, that could be a uh, blessing or a warning, I think, to close. <laughs> you're going to have to live with them. <laughs> it could be great, you're gonna to... but you're going to have to live with them. <laughs> well, you're going to have yeah, That's right. Okay. So I didn't mean to come off as a negative. Did that sound so negative? <laughs> no, I, no that... I, maybe that's that's my <laughs> natural cynicism creeping in. in I apologize. <laughs> okay. No need. I uh, What a great conversation. Once again, we'll post the link to the full uh, editorial from the good uh, Mr. Salingo, um, so you can r- read up on that. Uh, but uh, we hope that this has given you some uh, insight and some thoughts on how to approach, particularly this idea of luck. Now, now you mentioned this book uh, uh, by uh, Dr. Richard Weissman. Do you have that book handy? Yeah, it's called The Luck Factor, The Four Essential Principles. And uh, it's got some great concepts in here i think it's all it's worth all of us taking a look at i will uh, i'll post a link to the uh, to the book on amazon so folks can uh, can get a feel for the luck factor by richard wiseman uh as ever thank you howard for your time and attention this morning and thank you pete do you want do you want to go ahead and do the close because it's i don't thing. know how to do the close no? I, I might interrupt you during the close you all start right. all right well uh if you want to figure find out more about us you can head over to tybalink.com you can uh catch up with every episode on the show i encourage you to head over to itunes and subscribe for free a great way to ensure you don't miss a single weekly episode of uh, howard tybel's fantastic wisdom and pete and and pete's excellent oh, interviewing too kind right They're clapping right now, Pete. On behalf of the goodly Mr. Howard Teibel, I'm Pete Wright. And Pete Wright. (laughs) We'll catch you next week on Navigating Change, the podcast from Teibel, Inc. (laughs) 